And that would be my vision once again when elected attorney general would be to reach out to my colleagues in the three U.S. attorney's offices and say, we're open for business and we'd like to work collaboratively with you because I think that's what gives the fullest measure of justice for the citizens. This is Dare to Defend, a campaign podcast with Alice Martin. She's running for attorney general, and we're right there with her. I'm Brett Janik, and this is episode 15, Aiming Higher. Good morning, Alice. Uh, We are recording this episode two days after Easter Sunday. How did you and your family celebrate the good news? Well, um, I was lucky. I had uh, one one of my children lives in North Carolina, and one lives in Alabama, and one lives in Ohio. And I got two of the three uh, home for an early Easter celebration on uh, actually Maudie Thursday. So we uh, celebrated on Thursday, and then my husband and I celebrated at a sunrise service on uh, Easter Sunday, and it was uh, beautiful after the full blue moon the night before. So it was a lovely morning. Well, we've touched on the subject of faith before, exploring how it's played a central role throughout your life. I wonder what role has your faith played in this campaign? Has your faith been tested at all while campaigning? Has the experience of campaigning taught you anything about your faith? I do think that uh, that God gives us a brain and wants us to do some of our own homework, you know, so we shouldn't just hold up our hands and say, well, it's God's will and and uh, and uh, leave it up to him. I think he wants uh, voters to be educated and so uh, meeting with the voters, I hope I've done that. But no, my, my, my faith is very strong, and it's not tested by these little day-to-day things that will uh, come and go. You know, it's more of the long-term principles that I, I abide by. Uh, last Thursday morning, the Alabama legislature ended its 2018 session. I want to unpack their activity or lack thereof. But first, I was hoping to touch on a couple of interesting regional and national developments. Two weeks ago, Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant signed a law banning women from receiving abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. You noted on social media that the Alabama legislature this session failed to pass any pro-life legislation. Are the state's elected officials doing enough to advance a pro-life agenda? I think that we saw a lack of any effort this time. Uh, Maybe it was because of the self-proclaimed, we're not going to have anything controversial during this election year session uh, that was made by um, the leadership of both chambers at the very beginning of the session. But I don't think you let up in an election year. I think that's what the voters want is for you to be ever vigilant. And, you know, I'm from Mississippi and I'm proud of that state for passing something to try to, you know, outlaw abortions from the 15 week period to the 20. I think that will have a significant difference. Of course, I expect it to be challenged in court 
and we'll see if it makes a new law and is upheld or not. To what extent is the is a legislature uh, wasting some of their energies by passing a bill that will be held up? You know, you mentioned you expected it to be, I think, almost immediately after it was signed into law by Governor Bryant, a U.S. district judge granted a temporary restraining order. What is the balance between passing aspirational laws and passing laws that can actually be put into effect? Well, you don't know whether it's aspirational until you pass that law and have it challenged in court. You know, Roe versus Wade was something. Something, I guess, aspirational uh, back in its day of somebody wanting that that freedom. Uh, so the courts are constantly used to test the boundaries of what is constitutional and not constitutional. And so I see it as a good use of legislative time. You know, some people will say, well, that's a your pro-choice people will say, well, that's a waste of state resources. And I would disagree. I have worked in the attorney general's office. And the defense of that type of statute is done in-house by attorneys that are paid their salary, whether they're working on the defense of a pro-life bill uh, or law, or if they're working on a death penalty case. Uh, so uh, it's no different to them. They are they are taking on a battle for the state as a state's um, assistant attorney general. So it's no additional cost. On the national level, uh, Democrats have been up in arms over the Trump administration's plans to include a citizenship question on the 2020 census. In reference to these plans, California Attorney General Xavier Becerra said it's not just a bad idea, it's illegal. Alice, what are the issues at play here, and does Becerra's statement hold any water at all? Well, I don't think it does. It's my understanding that question was on the census at some time in the past, and then removed. The Constitution says that there will be a counting of citizens and non-citizens. I think one question is, are illegal non-citizens? And if they are, so be it. But we need to count these people. You know, this is important because of two reasons. It, It can affect representation. You know, we have a limited number of House of Representatives, and those can be allocated and shift. You know, just because your state currently has seven or nine or five doesn't mean it will always have that. There are shifting state populations. And we've seen California grow in its representation, which means it grows in its influence. It grows as the effect on the electoral college. And so that means it can have a bigger effect on the election of a president. Also, it's my understanding that these numbers are used to allocate certain federal funding. And I don't believe our founding fathers ever thought that those systems would be used to reward a state like California that has declared itself a sanctuary jurisdiction and is harboring illegal aliens. Why should California get the benefit of more tax dollars uh, out there or increased representation in Congress because they are not following federal laws? So I applaud Trump for uh, trying to return in many ways to what our founding fathers wanted our country to uh, look like and be and to enforce federal laws. So I think it's a good question. Broadly speaking, what role will state attorney generals play in the census process and in specifically upholding decisions like this about what is included on the census? Well, what happens is you'll have an attorney general like California that will file a lawsuit that says uh, this question 
is unconstitutional and should not be included. And uh, it's my experience that the Democratic Attorney General's Association, they will fall in behind California's Democratic Attorney General, and they'll file what we call amicus briefs. Those are friends of the court briefs, uh, and it's just additional material for the court to consider uh, for the legal arguments of why the question is not proper. So on the other side, the Department of Justice will have its attorneys, the Solicitor General's office, filing briefs for President Trump, and you can anticipate Republican attorney generals falling in line behind Trump and filing amicus briefs in support. That is what we did when I was in the attorney general's office. We filed briefs against Obama's transgender bathroom mandates, against same-sex marriage, against Waters of the United States rulings. So you can expect the attorney generals on both the Democratic and the Republican side to be very active in this litigation. Turning back to the just-ended legislative session in Alabama, tell our listeners, if you would, how the economic developer bill that we've discussed here ended up faring. Well, it passed. So it fared very well for those that wanted that loophole, which I believe John Archibald uh, credited with gutting the ethics bill or ethics laws. When this bill was initially introduced, they wanted to exclude a discrete group of economic developers that are called site selectors from having to register as lobbyists because it was essentially, they argued, like showing your hand in poker. Uh, So these are people that work, as I understand it, to help maybe a Toyota or a Mercedes-Benz find new land in a state, work to get the concessions from the government, and move big big plants into a state. So they are selecting a site. And, of course, Alabama does compete with other states in the south and across the country for these new manufacturing facilities. So it was introduced as a bill that we need to protect those people so that we can compete. And when it was introduced, there were questions asked by legislators. Has this been a problem? Has Alabama missed out on any economic opportunities as a result of these individuals having to register as lobbyists? And no one could give them an example of where it had been a problem in Alabama. And this bill was the brainchild, as I understand it, of uh, the Secretary of Commerce, Greg Canfield. And, of course, it was supported by Governor Ivey. So I think people questioned, why is it being introduced? Then it morphed from something that would affect only an estimated 60 to 70 site selectors in the state to it ended up all economic developers. Uh, They said, oh, we need it to cover people that work for the Chamber of Commerce just a couple of hours here, a couple of hours there. So it went from 60 to 70 discrete people to all economic developers, and then it went to all part-time economic developers. And people said, no, no, no. There was a lot of debate. They went back, rewrote it, and they said, oh, we took out part-time, and now we've made it less than full-time. I mean, it was really a joke and a war on words. And how it ended up is that economic developers, which now you or I could say we are economic developers, We would no longer have to register as lobbyists. 
And now we can not have to abide by spending limits on how we entertain legislators. There's no transparency or accountability. And remember, as we've discussed before, the whole purpose of the ethics law, it is stated in the Alabama law. The purpose is to provide transparency and accountability of elected officials to the voters, to the taxpayers. And now we have now that's gone for this big class of people. And this is exactly some of the shenanigans that went on during the Hubbard case. And Canfield certainly knows that because he was one of the people that was improperly and the jury said illegally lobbied. Speaking of that transparency that we uh, hope to see out of our elected officials, yesterday, State Representative Jack Williams of Estavia Hills, former head of the Alabama GOP, Marty Connors, and a California healthcare businessman were arrested in Alabama on federal bribery charges. How do you view this development from a prosecutor's perspective? And do you think that this arrest speaks to the type of pervasive corruption that you've talked about since the start of your campaign? Well, of course, I always like to say, just as I did when I was U.S. attorney, these are charges. They are allegations, and the case will need to be tried to a jury or a pleas be entered before we know what the result is. But this seems to have stemmed from um, a former legislator, Mickey Hammond, who is was the majority leader in the House who was convicted, pled guilty, involving this Trina health care and apparently he is working with uh, my old colleagues in the middle district of Alabama in the U.S. Attorney's Office with the U.S. Postal Service and the FBI to give them information about a scheme that he believed existed and involved these new defendants that were charged yesterday. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. I am happy to see that corruption work is being done uh, by the federal authorities And I'd like to see more work done by the state in the AG's office so that taxpayers know that their money is being properly spent and that votes are given for the right reasons, not in exchange for any monies. So as far as the charges yesterday, that's yet to be proven, but I'm sure that it is uh, going to unfold here in the coming uh, days and weeks. You mentioned that the charges were federal in nature. Walk our listeners through just briefly the division of power between state and federal authorities in the public corruption space, and and maybe speak to how an expansion of resources would put you more on par with uh, federal authorities as a force against corruption. Sure. Well, your, your state prosecutors have state laws to enforce. Uh, that's the tools, as I call them, that they have. And in Alabama, they're pretty limited to the ethics law itself. We do not in Alabama have some of the same tools that the federal Uh, prosecutors have and that I had when I was U.S. attorney, such as wire fraud, mail fraud, some of those honest services. In Alabama, the state prosecutors are generally charging you under the ethics law violation. In the federal, you'll see things more like bribery, wire fraud, mail fraud. The division is that typically the federal uh, authorities will get involved when federal dollars or a federal program is impacted by the corrupt action. And there can be bleed over 
because you could also have state funds that are involved. For example, specifically on the charges yesterday, we're talking about allegations involving a health care program that was rendering services to Medicaid uh, diabetic patients. Well, of course, Medicaid is a blending of state and federal dollars. So you could have state jurisdiction if there was wrongdoing, and you could have federal jurisdiction. And when I was U.S. attorney from 2001 to 2009 in Birmingham and covering the top 31 counties, what I did was form the North Alabama Public Corruption Task Force. I partnered with then Attorney General Bill Pryor and we cross-designated. So I had some of his state prosecutors specially designated as special assistant U.S. attorneys. We call them SALSAs. And he had some of my assistant U.S. attorneys cross-designated as assistant attorney generals. So when we brought a corruption case that involved state actors, you know, legislators, we could try it in federal court for the federal crimes and in state court for the state and have the same people, you know, a state and a federal prosecutor sitting at council table working together uh, in the state court, you know, one week and in the federal court another week. So that's when you get a synergy that's really, really important because sometimes you'll decide the better case is in federal court or it's in state court. And uh, that gives you a lot of flexibility when you're working together as a team. And that would be my vision once again when elected attorney general would be to reach out to my colleagues in the three U.S. attorney's offices and say, we're open for business and we'd like to work collaboratively with you because I think that's what gives the fullest measure of justice for the citizens. Alice, we're fewer than 65 days out from the primary election. Uh, I know. Don't tell me. (laughs) (laughs) It's coming up. It seemed like so long ago when we started campaigning in June. I cannot believe it. Well, most successful campaigns depend on a strong army of volunteers to help push them over the finish line that's quickly approaching. Yes. What, What kind of volunteer response has the campaign had so far? And how do you plan on utilizing volunteers to spread your message? Well, volunteers are really the oxygen that fuels the fire for victory, truly is. And we can't thank enough the people that have volunteered uh, that say, what can I do? And I think that's one of the biggest things. People want to know what can they do. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Right now, we've got people that are phone banking. Uh, We use a tool Uh, That's called I360. It's an app that goes onto your cell phone. And instead of the old system of going into one room, maybe at a uh, sales office, I remember doing phone banking back for Reagan and Bush back in the 80s in Memphis, Tennessee. And we would go to an insurance agent's office and you would sit in a room where there was a bunch of telephones and you would be given these call lists. And you would dial a number and you would say, I'm, I'm with this campaign and, uh, you know, if the election were held tomorrow, that kind of thing. And you talk about your candidate and educate them. Uh, that's not the way it's done today. We still have uh, pizza parties and bring people in the same room. But you can also be in the comfort of your own home uh, with this app on your phone. And you press a button and it starts dialing the numbers that are built in, that have been built in for you. And uh, once the voter tells you what what their uh, leaning is or answers certain questions for you, you punch in your answers and it records them. 
and we move on to the next. And so you can call hundreds of people in a night. So we've got opportunities for phone banking. Then you've got people that really like to do canvassing, which is that door-to-door. So we have been doing canvassing now for a couple of weeks in some of our bigger counties like Tuscaloosa and Jefferson. And we've got a gorgeous day today in Birmingham. The high is going to be 81. Uh, Summer may come uh, instantly here. Uh, And people will go door-to-door and educate the voters. Uh, What we find often is that people are not aware that the election is uh, about 63 days away, and they want to learn more, and we're able to provide them with some information. So we've got opportunities for people that can work from home or that would like to get out in their neighborhoods, uh, and that can be uh, any neighborhood in any county. Uh, We can help set that up. We've got volunteer coordinators, and very soon we'll enlist, uh, we will release our county chairs for each county, and folks can help in that way. We've also got volunteers that love to put up signs, so you'll start seeing a lot more signs go up. And lastly, probably one of the best things that people can do for us is the simple thing of liking us on Facebook, liking our page sharing with your friends and asking them to like us and sharing and liking posts because then that gets uh, that groundswell of people learning about you. If I post something on the social media, uh, my friends will see it, uh, but yours won't unless they're my friends as well. But if you share my post to your page, then now all of a sudden all of your friends have seen it. So helps us to grow. Well, for listeners who want to volunteer, what steps should they take to get in touch with the campaign? Really easy. Go on to our website, alicemartin.com, and we have a volunteer button. Or if you want to email directly, you can email Zach, that's Z-A-C-H, at alicemartin.com, or Nathaniel at alicemartin.com. Both of those gentlemen are political directors uh, we have uh, in areas of the state, and they can explain all the various opportunities to you. And uh, some of them have been a lot of fun. For the uh, uh, younger set this week, we actually start tomorrow. It's going to be a 10-day rivalry. It's Auburn versus Alabama. It's uh, the college Republicans, uh, the law school Republicans, and any other students that want to participate in those college towns. And for 10 days, we'll see who can make the most calls and hit the most doors, and then we'll have a winner. Well, Alice, I'm ready to hop out and start canvassing for you, and I hope our listeners are too. Thanks, as always, for joining us, and uh, good luck on the campaign trail. Well, thank you, and I hope if anybody's listening from Winston County that they know I'll be uh, this coming Friday at the Reagan dinner on Friday night, and I'll be in Baldwin at the tax rally on Saturday, and we'll have people at the Crawfish Festival at A-Day in Auburn, Coleman, uh, breakfast on Saturday morning. We're everywhere, and we certainly hope to see uh, the voters there and answer any and all of their questions. Well, great. We'll talk to you soon, Alice. Thank you. Dare to Defend is an 1819 Media production. To learn more about Alice Martin and her campaign for Attorney General, visit her at www.alicemartin.com. I'm Brett Janik, and we'll see you next week from the train.